This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. For those who listen, for those who are willing to listen, here's Johnny. Jerusalem, if I forget you, boy, I am a gun come from it. Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do. With elections happening over and over and over and over and over and over again, the absence of a state budget. The fracturing of the right and left into ever smaller and more factional groups. Groups within groups. We can certainly all celebrate just how open Israeli democracy is. But what about the state of the political system? Is it working all that well? And what about the tectonic plates of Israeli society in these pandemic times? Can Israel's political system be salvaged? This episode is not so much about Israel's fourth election in under two years, but more the promise of what it might lead to. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has built his coalitions on the ultra-religious, but COVID's disrupted their society. Some are moving into secular academia and productive jobs, while Arab Israelis, 20% of the population, are reaching the higher echelons of Israeli society for the first time, thanks to Bibi, the pragmatist. Israel's longest-serving PM changes course without causing the upheaval that comes with it so often. With thanks to the Miriam Institute, in particular Benjamin Anthony, Rosita Panini and Alan Langer, I get to talk to two of Israel's leading figures of the last four decades. They may well hail from very different political backgrounds, yet between them they share a deep-rooted decades-long demonstrable commitment to the Jewish state and they've got immense respect for one another. Former member of Knesset for the Labour Party, Dr. Nachman Shai, PhD, has announced his decision to stand again to be an MK. Iran is getting, alarmingly, getting close to nuclear bomb. It's not a joke. Then he will agree with me. They're getting closer. I'm not just saying wolf, wolf. We all know what's going on. Where's Where's the government? Who's in charge? When you are always focused on the upcoming election, for one day to another, all your attention, all your, all the government, the cabinet, the Knesset members, everyone is dealing with us with upcoming elections. Who is in charge? Who is in charge of the life of millions of Israelis? And joining him, Ambassador Danny Ayalon, Israel's former ambassador to the United States of America and a former member of the Yisrael Beitenu party, led by Avigdor Lieberman. Only the left in Israel can wage wars and only the right can make peace. Stand by for some stunning predictions from our guests today on the tragedy of Netanyahu and the emancipation of Israeli Arabs brought about by the Abraham Accords. From Great Britain via Israel to the world. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Tell your friends, spread the word, and subscribe now. Can Israel's electoral system be salvaged? Gentlemen, a warm welcome to you. On to another election during this pandemic. Israel is high on democracy, something which Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warned against because it costs so much more than the budget to run a government. Uh, Professor Nachman Shai, the irony of him saying not another election is actually, he will probably be the main beneficiary of it with an increased majority. Ah, well, no more prophets left in the Holy Land, and no one can tell you what the outcome of the elections <laughs> will be, Johnny. Uh, I'd like also to join my friend, Danny Ayalon, and thank you, the Institute, Rosita, 
Benjamin, uh, you, Danny, that our friendship is going back, back to, I don't know, the beginning of the years of the state of Israel in your journey. So I don't know who's going to win the elections. Uh, it may be Netanyahu and it may not be Netanyahu as well, uh, because it's all open. The very fact that they, we are now going for the fourth uh, elections in two years is, is, in a way, is a tragedy. For, for the people of Israel and for the state of Israel. It has never been, um, it has never occurred in, in our history. And it doesn't speak well for the credit of the Israeli democracy that is unable to produce a stable government for four years. The average, the average term by the way of Israeli government is three, so, but, but not half a year or 11 months. Uh, so it's time to, to check the system as well, what's wrong with the system. But at the same time, currently the issue is for or against Netanyahu. There's, there's no much ideology, I would say. At least a, a significant portion of the center-right in Israel, uh, those who used to vote for Likud or similar parties close to the Likud, do not want specifically and personally Netanyahu to serve any longer as Israel prime minister. And they, that's why they choose to vote for other parties. I don't see much of ideology, ideological a conflict here at the present. Not that they don't exist, they, they do. And I would like very much that they will be part of the uh, public discourse or the political discourse in Israel. But apparently they were pushed aside and the entire state is not focusing on the question whether Netanyahu will have the 61 vote or not. Because if none of the, the political camps is able to produce at least 61 votes, we are, go we are going to head immediately to the fifth election, the sixth election. But that's not a game. This is not a game. In between election camp, there is a state by the name Israel with 9.2 million citizens suffering heavily and deeply from, from the pandemic. Uh, uh, high employment is high. Of course, we were able to uh, vaccinate many of the Israelis. That's fine. That's a world record. But that doesn't tell the whole story. It tells only one segment of the whole story. The whole story is that the government failed to run the country during this period and was not able to, uh, uh, to, to continue as much as possible normal life. Education system returned to Israel today after all, over a year that, uh, that young boys and girls, uh, the young students had to stay home and drive their parents crazy and doing very little. That's zooming in, zooming out. And they lost one year in the, in the life and the studies. That's a big failure of the government. But that's not an issue in the elections. Everyone is concerned about the question, does Netanyahu have the 61 or doesn't have it? So it's quite a significant stage or time in our history uh, where we stand. And I hope very much if he wins or if he loses that we finally have a government uh, for at least 30 years, 30 years to start and tackle the huge, huge uh, uh, issues and, and challenges that were produced as a result of the pandemic. Danny, can I ask you about the idea that for all the different colors, perspectives, coalitions, names of parties, which change month after month and year after year, it's quite a binary election system. It's those who are pro Netanyahu and those who are against Netanyahu. I mean, we can really distill everything down to that, can't we? Well, yes, I guess for the moment and probably for the last 10 years, this is the case. But uh, when we look into a political system, you know, for the long run, uh, we cannot just look at a specific uh, example or a private case of uh, Netanyahu. Uh, I believe that uh, probably everybody believes, except Netanyahu himself, maybe, that at some point he will have to step down, uh, hopefully with the 
very good health and uh, on his two feet, uh, unlike Sharon. But this maybe shows you to the shallowness of the, the Israeli politics. And the landscape is, is really very, very poor. It's poor ideologically, as uh, uh, Nachman just uh, said. Uh, it's poor from a visionary, a vision point of view, and, and even policies. If it all being reduced to yes, Netanyahu or not, this is what, what brings the situation to almost a halt with uh, three or four elections uh, in almost uh, or less than, than two years. This is very, very uh, uh, troublesome. We do need an electoral uh, reform, but unfortunately, the only ones who can allow that are those who benefit from the current situation and the current system. This is why I do not see an electoral reform in the offing, and it will have to be a major, major deep social change in the country to effect such a, uh, a possibility of electoral reform. We'll talk about how we arrive at electoral reform if the establishment is so against it in just a moment. But Nachman, can I ask you, every election landscape is so radically different in Israel. We had the blue and whites with uh, Benny Gantz, and uh, he nearly made prime minister. He's not going to now. That's all history. The next challenger, it's like a boxing match. We welcome Gideon Saar, a former Likudnik who's broken ranks. Does he stand a chance? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, no, sorry. Uh, by the way, um, um, Blue and White had no any ideology. It was just a group of a bunch, a group of very good people in, in principle, coming from all uh, uh, sides and uh, of the political map, but all of them were united under one flag. How to bring Netanyahu down? And they they failed. They finally joined the, the, the coalition, some of them. Some of them remain in the opposition. Some of them uh, started a new party and a third party and a fourth party. Uh, this is one of the major weaknesses of the Israeli political system. At the end of the day, blue and white was just a, a myth, just a dream. Uh, and I, by the way, I don't take any credit for that, but I, I would have told you that from the very beginning. Because if you don't have any uh, ideological as Danny rightly mentioned, the, the, the ideological cement or, or that brings people together, make them work together towards a, a certain and common goal. Uh, who are they? What, what do they stand for? And uh, Gideon Saar is coming from the deep right. Actually, I would say even he's more to the right than, than Netanyahu. Netanyahu, in a way, proved uh, in the course of his very long term that he can be a pragmatist, peace or normalized relations with UAE and Bahrain and later on Morocco and Sudan, instead of annexing territories for, for, a, for a right-wing leader? No. Eretz Israel comes first. The less, the less they don't. And he preferred from, I mean, his own choice. That was his, it was his decision. No one, no one told him what to do. He doesn't consult with his friends, the party, I can assure you. He said to himself, I'd like to promote Israel legitimacy. And if I can finally break this uh, um, um, high wall of uh, Arab animosity towards Israel, and I have new partners, even if it's far away in the Gulf, these are not the neighboring countries, let's take this opportunity and I won't miss it. So I don't know if Gidon Saar, had he been there, would have been the same uh, decision. I'm almost sure he wouldn't. So uh, I don't know what Gidon Saar prospects are. He's not going to fly too high. 
as long as he may join coalition with the Netanyahu and maybe a kind of rotation, uh, which be, usually Netanyahu gives the rotation for the second or the third part of, uh, of the Knesset term, and they'll never get there, okay? When his term expires, new elections are being called, okay? He has a reputation that he, he, he gives the, <laughs> the other party the rotation for the second half or the third half or, or the third part of the, of, the, of, the, of the Knesset term. You never reach there. You never get there. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening now. November is the, is, the, is the time to rotate the government. They'll get there. Probably Gantz will not be even a Knesset man. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there, isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel. Um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that that to be honest really really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be to be truth tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either Patreon.com/slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. Ko-fi.com/slash Johnny Gould. February is a long time in politics. Right. It goes the same. No one ever said just until now. Nachman, can I just stay with you there? Because uh, let's just rewind to something you said at the, right at the beginning of that uh, answer, which was that the reason why Benny Gantz and his Blue and White Coalition never succeeded, and I don't want to take credit for this particularly, but I could have told you there wasn't anything ideological about them except that they really all wanted to get Netanyahu out together. And so may I ask you, as a Labour Party member, it's been such a huge part of Israel's history in the first three decades. But after losing eight elections, Menachem Begin's Likud Party have rarely looked back since 1977. Nachman, Labour faced extinction in the last election. What is the future, not just of Labour, but, but of the left? You know, what was the blue and white really a, a failure of the ideological left to actually make traction with the people? It's the right which is the sort of the living and being ideology of Israeli life in 2021. Uh, it's a lack of leadership, first of all. The center-left has had no leadership since, I would say, the generation of Rabin and Peres. Even Barak was able to hold the, to the prime ministership uh, for a year and a half and fail. 
Sharon was, that Danny knew very well and worked for, was a kind of a, in between, a compromise of right and left. Kadima was a combined power, political powers from right and left. It also survived only for a while. Eud Olmert was very much actually uh, in his, deep in his heart, belonged to the, to the right, but later on he, he chose a different political way. But I would say that the center left uh, hasn't been able to produce new generations of leaders. Unlike the Likud and unlike the right wing. Now you receive, for example, two new names, as I just mentioned, one of them is Saul, the other is Naftali Bennett in their fifties, uh, early, relatively young as a politician, but quite experienced. Uh, and, and I can name others as well. So there's a, a kind of prepared the line of leaders to take over for Netanyahu. I don't see them on, on, the, on the central left. My party finally produced a new name, a lady, a female by the name Erav Michaeli. She's new, she's a newcomer. She's altogether seven or eight years in the Knesset, never served in any executive position. So she cannot claim that she's uh, the next prime minister of the state of Israel, right? And I still don't see anyone in the central left, left that enjoys a significant public confidence to run the country. This is something that we all should be aware of. The Israelis uh, electorate are not, it's not stupid. They want to choose leaders that can carry the country on. And no other states in the world faces so many challenges like Israel. So where are the leaders? Who is going to be in charge? Who, as, as Netanyahu used to ask the question, who will pick up the phone at three o'clock in the morning and answer the whoever is on the other side? It takes time. And in between the left or the central left, lost, uh, also left, so lost a significant part of its of, of political power because many Israelis, women, move from left to center and from center to right in a gradual process that we have to, we can detect from one election campaign to the other. So uh, it, there's no longer, I mean, it's fifth, between the Jewish, as we say in general, the Jewish population in Israel, a proportion is 60% center-right and 40% center-left. The prospects of the center-left to replace Netanyahu on the right wing is, is under, under 50% right now. So now, gentlemen, having discussed the introductory issues at stake here, it is time to unpack electoral reform. Otherwise, we are going to have a fifth election, a sixth election, a seventh election, and maybe even before lockdown has finished. Let's hope not. Um, now, we're talking about, uh, you've hinted, both of you, that it's really against the establishment's interests to look for a reform and that actually social change is required. Are we on the edge Ambassador Ayalon, of some social change now because of what the pandemic forced upon the people in the UK. And I want you to talk about what we're seeing in, in Israel. There is a communal kind of uh, attitude of helping one another in the millennial generation, simply because I believe they can't afford a stake in the society in which they're growing up into. In other words, house prices, just like Tel Aviv, just like Haifa, Yerushalayim, they are sky high, 25 times the average salary if they're lucky enough to have a job. So is it now a case of actually that society will change enough for that electoral form 
to become a reality. If you will allow me, I just want to pick up one thing uh, that, uh, you know, uh, on the heels of what uh, uh, Nachman said about the, the Labour Party. You know, sometimes, I think the Labour Party, you know, when you compare it to, to Likud, is a classic case where rules and regulations overpower mm -hmm. substance. Why do I say that? If you look at the Likud, for the last, you know, 100 years, <laughs> since uh, Jabotinsky pretty much uh, formed the revisionist uh, uh, movement, they've had altogether only four leaders. Exactly, four leaders. If you go back and, you know, it's uh, Begin, of course, and Shamir, and uh, Sharon, you would say, you know, it was an interim. I, I agree with, uh, with Nachman and, of course, Netanyahu. Now, why couldn't labor do the same? It's very, very simple in my mind. It's so simple that it just boggles the mind. It's a matter of the rules and regulations of the party. Nachman knows it uh, uh, very well. You know, the, the, the rules of the party of labor is that if the head of the party lost an election, that means he did not become the premier, the prime minister, then there should or could be elections within 14 months of the, of, of the, the last elections for the head of the party. So you see that the heads of the parties were always very, 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 very vulnerable, and the, the, the switch was just intolerable uh, uh, pace. And I think this is part of the problems we have now. And once you cannot hold the party together in leadership, then everything else falls apart in terms of ideology, in terms of vision, in terms of policies, in terms of really effective parliamentarian uh, tactics. Because also, you know, the opposition and part of the, the fact that Likud has been so strong is the opposition is very, very uh, weak. Uh, I can tell you, for instance, you know, that uh, when Likud was in opposition from 2006 to 2009, uh, Netanyahu headed a party of 12 seats. And these 12 seats were able to really outmaneuver uh, the, the, the major coalition, the coalition of, of Olmert. Uh, so this is about the differences, I would say, between Likud and Labour, which has nothing to do with policies and ideology. You know, Israel's, you know, we're talking about left, right, or center. I don't think that uh, this uh, category uh, qualifies anymore. These are not really the, the real parameters because there is hardly any difference today. I mean, you have on the very fringes, you have the extreme right, the extreme left. There you can say there is a marked, uh, very, very visible, distinguished parity, or I mean, a, a difference between the parties. But when you look from Likud through uh, Kadima or through uh, Blue and White or whatever, to the labor, there is always almost no difference because the issue right now is not the territories, is not war or peace. And when it comes to the issue of the Palestinians, the center of Israel moved all the way to the right for two reasons. First of all, it was the Intifada, the second Intifada. You know, before the second Intifada, 2000, 80% uh, of Israelis were for two-state solution. After the second Intifada, 80% of Israelis were against two, uh, two uh, uh, state solution because they felt betrayed 
after Ehud Barak gave so much to the Palestinians and instead of you know, grabbing his hand and making peace, they uh, not only rejected uh, his offer, but they started uh, this, this uh, intifada, which cost a thousand of Israeli lives and uh, 7,000 maimed and, and injured. And, and, and that was uh, terrible. The second reason is the disengagement from Gaza. With the disengagement from Gaza, when everybody was hoping for changing the landscape with the Palestinians, what we saw quite the opposite. Hamas took over, launched all the, uh, the, the terror and the, and, the, uh, and, the, and the rockets. And today, this is where we are, almost nobody. This election, for instance, is as you, as you mentioned, uh, John, is for Bibi or against Bibi. Not even uh, economic issues, not social issues or anything else. Now, when we come to the um, effect of the pandemic uh, on uh, Israeli society, I would say that here we have to uh, also distinguish between the different sectors of the, the society. I mean, it's not a universal effect on everyone. I think those who are the heads, you know, in Tel Aviv and Haifa and the major cities, I think they will not change their way of lives. Their way of life has not been changed at all. You know, we have a very strong uh, economy, because most of it is based on a high tech, which has not been affected by the uh, by COVID, quite the contrary. This, this will continue to be as it is. But we have two other uh, segments, which are very important. One is the Haredim, you know, the ultra-Orthodox, and the other one are the Arabs. So here, I believe there's going to be some reckoning, especially with the Haredim, with the ultra-Orthodox, where they have, or many of them, we don't see it right now, but uh, there are deep currents that uh, show a lack of confidence in their leaders, in their spiritual leaders. There are no strong leaders like Rabbi Shach that we had before, or Rabbi um, Eliyahu Uvalya uh, Yosef. Those were leaders who yeah. could really reason, and they were strong enough and confident enough that they were able also to be lenient when it came to the halacha. The weaker the rabbis are, the less they can be lenient on the halacha, and they are afraid to make any you know, changes or to uh, uh, allow anything. The easiest thing is to say no, 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 no. It's much harder to say yes and to uh, distinguish when you can say yes and where you can say no. I think that the leadership of the uh, ultra-Orthodox have really uh, did a very, very poor service for their constituencies. Hence, uh, most of the corona cases are within the ultra-Orthodox. Once this is all over, I think there is going to be reckoning again. And, uh, and many of them, we may see, may go into the labor market, may go into academic uh, pursuits, of course, of, uh, uh, of their revolution, which will be great, basically, for the country. The Arabs may do the same, Although in their case, there is no leadership to speak of. And uh, over there, it's pretty much um, catch as you can. And nothing has been really uh, taking over and, and helping them. Very few years, we may have uh, 40% of our population, uh, which are the non-productive sectors. Right now, it's the ultra-Orthodox and the Arabs. And that could be very, 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 very uh, significant for Israel's social uh, uh, fabric and also for its uh, political and uh, economic future. But I am bullish because I believe that at the end of the day, and maybe this pandemic, what it will do is that it will bring in significant part of the ultra-Orthodox into the mainstream. 
and I believe Arabs as well. Danny, that was a, a fantastic answer. And uh, I've had to cross out three questions uh, from my schedule. Uh, such was the scope and uh, selection of answers. So thank you for that, Ambassador. Let me turn Danny, to... Danny can Professor. ask the question, questions and answer them. That's the <laughs> perfect, perfect that interview. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and what you're talking about there, Danny, are, are really fascinating sociological changes brought about by the pandemic where uh, the religious go into wider society, become uh, academics uh, on a secular basis and contribute more to our society and the same for the Arabs. We have seen, obviously, huge schisms develop, huge rows between communities, not that they were particularly cohesive before the lockdown, but boy, oh boy, some things really are uh, happening. You know, a, a talk of a Hillel Hashem, a divorce between certain uh, religious communities, such as the disobedience of lockdown. With the Arab communities, we're starting to see some of the disaffected coming out and being more vociferous, that they're engaging more in their power. That's not a, a sort of a, an internal threat, but it's something to think about, uh, Nachman. I mean, it's very, very good to hear Danny being so bullish and about the consequences being a positive, uh, a new cohesion we hadn't have imagined, but when it, it may not work out like that. I mean, we are still in a, a situation around the world and in Israel that is unprecedented. We don't really know the societal, economic and demographic conclusions that will come of this. They may take decades to emerge. Yeah, I totally uh, agree with you. Of course, we don't know what will be the, the long-term implications of, of uh, the pandemic on, on Israel and, and the world as a whole. I think that uh, what we can uh, say right now is that it helped us to understand very well gaps within Israel um, between poor and rich. We have many, new many rich people, but too many poor people. One third of the Israeli kids are under poverty line. 21% of the senior citizens are on the poverty line, uh, the same um, percentage of, of families. That cannot uh, continue uh, absolutely. That should be, that should be going down immediately, I mean, as much as possible. The truth about center and periphery, like any other place in the world, the, the poor and those who live far away from, from the center die uh, in higher percentage than those who live in the, in the center and those who enjoy better uh, health conditions and, and services. Unfortunately, the, the gaps between Jews and, and Arabs uh, living in Israel, which the Arabs fall into the remote communities and the poor communities. And, and Danny described where Israel is heading. When it comes to the Arabs, I'd like to say uh, one thing. I, I'd like to praise Prime Minister Netanyahu, what he did recently, because he broke uh, the lines between Jews and Arabs. And he finally decided from his own reasons that uh, maybe he can draw one or two um, mandates from, from the Arab society in Israel. Had you told him that two years ago, when he uh, went on television or on social media and called the, the Jews to come out immediately to the polls in order to defeat hundreds of thousands of, uh, of Arabs that are running to vote right now. And he said, emergency, emergency, guys, I mean, save Israel because the Arabs are going to win the elections. And they came and he was reelected. But this is a new Netanyahu, at least it looks like. And he says, well, why don't we live with the Arabs? 
he visited one of the Arab villages. By the way, Arab villages sometimes are much longer than, than, than cities in Israel. And he looked around and said, I see so many Arabs around. And he made a certain political alliance with one of the heads of the Arab parties uh, that may be linked to his coalition after the elections, if elected. He did something very important that he didn't mean to, if you ask me, because there was a kind of boycott on Arabs. Arabs were not included in any potential future government. Okay, I understand some reasons, you know, security matters, uh, defense matters. Okay, I understand, but we can find where we have a security uh, cabinet that, that Danny was a member of it. They can handle Israel's security. But other issues are very common to every single Israeli, Jew or Arab. So Netanyahu, from his own political reasons, I, I don't think he suddenly woke up in the morning, but it doesn't really matter. Years to come, people will not remember any longer, but the very fact that for the first time in the history of the Likud, the Likud, there is an Arab member that was positioned on the list. It's not realistic. He wouldn't be elected, but it doesn't really matter. And all, all his colleagues in the party, the government ministers, the party members, the Knesset members, and the rest of theirs are very quiet. As I haven't heard any word. So maybe this is a new chapter of Israeli-Arab relations in Israel now, which is very promising. And I have a lot of, uh, of hope that that may change the landscape of Israeli politics. Maybe the 10, 12, I don't know what the number of uh, Arab Knesset members will be elected in the, in the joint list. Well, they are partners. Let's talk to them and see if they can join in and be part of the entire... One out of five Israelis is an Arab, okay? So they cannot be kept out of the game and, and just living in their own villages they became integral parts of the Israeli society. Ask Danny how many of his medical doctors are Arabs. Mine out of five are three Arabs, Israeli Arabs. And I don't ask them if they are Muslim or Jewish or Christian when I come to get their advice, okay? When he goes to the pharmacy next to his home in Ramat Sharon, nine out of 10 are Arabs, okay? So it's time to figure out we have Arabs living 20%. Those who, of course, accept Israel as a Jewish democratic state, and I emphasize Jewish democratic state, are part of uh, Israel society now for good. And thank you, Mr. Netanyahu, of helping us finally to integrate, fully integrate Arabs, at least partially into the entire Israeli society. This is an extremely pleasant political discussion, gentlemen, with lots of hope and lots of ambition. Because of Danny. To both because of of Danny. I really, I, I really Danny, in, in... Danny makes the whole difference. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. Listen, uh, actually, you know, we both have the same upbringing, you know, we did the same, uh, you know, course in our lives, and we could easily switch parties uh, without even noticing. <laughs> well, this is, this is great. You know, and this is something that as a British European, and I say that as someone who voted for Brexit, which I see as the model of the nation state, just as Israel is, as the cohesive way of everyone wrapping themselves in the flag, associating with the values of their country. And Nachman and Danny, you come from different parties, but you say your uh, backgrounds are similar, that your ideology is, you know, overlaps so very, very much. You have the same kinship for the nation. I, having not been born in Israel, have a similar kinship to the country uh, as, as you do as a member of the Jewish diaspora. 
that uh, this idea that Arabs too are beginning in number to recognize that they are best served as Israelis than rather than Syrians, their cousins over the border in Lebanon, in failed states right across the region. Here they are with rights. It's not perfect on the street, but it's not bad either. And they're leading lives of fulfillment in Israel. This sounds, Ambassador Danny Ayalon, as the real kernel of a new uh, political consensus on the right. Yes, and um, even though uh, one might think that the overture of Netanyahu to the Arabs in Israel is out of political expediency, which could be the case, but you know, we say in, in, in Hebrew, we say, even gam im lo mitoch lishma lishma, that means even if you did the right things out of the wrong intentions, you did the right thing. And the fact that, uh, I was looking, I was looking for this translation for a long time. I had the same expression in Hebrew. But I said, where will I get the translation? Thank you, Danny. Now I know how to translate it to an American right. audience. Thank you. So I, I think what Netanyahu did is extraordinary. And it's amazing. Only he could do it. Absolutely. Uh, it it's like they say in Israel, only the left in Israel can wage wars and only the right can make peace uh, because there's no opposition. And I believe that what Bibi Netanyahu has been doing now will affect the country for generations to come and maybe even for good for the reasons that Nachman mentioned. And also, Johnny, what, what, what you mentioned, the Arab Israelis, I believe, were just waiting for a trigger because 99% of them uh, would like to be proud Israeli citizens. And they're not Zionists, maybe, but, you know, proud Israeli citizens, and especially in comparison to their kins in the Middle East. And Nachman is right. You know, most of the pharmacists I encounter are Arabs, many doctors, and they're doing a, a very good job. And I believe that this may be a, a setting a trend. Uh, by the way, it's, it's um, also something that, uh, you know, in, in order to be fair, to Netanyahu, and Nachman will verify that, uh, even before this overture, for political reasons or not, the Netanyahu government over the last 10 years has given more money, has granted more money to the Arab sector in Israel than any government beforehand. And uh, to raise their uh, standard of living, also their education, and also there is a uh, many government initiatives to bring many youngsters, Arab youngsters, into the high-tech field. And I know personally of some high-tech companies that were started by Arab Israelis, and some of them are very, very successful. And this, I, I think, would be just to the betterment of the country and also may, may help at the end of the day peace. By the way, the Abraham Accord, also what uh, Bibi Netanyahu achieved, which is also extraordinary, is also affecting the Arab Israelis because when they see the neighboring countries here you know, reaching out to Israel for many reasons. When they see that they can, with an Israeli passport, go over to the Emirates or be a bridge or do business as a, as a go-between the Jewish Israelis and the Arabs in the, in the Gulf, it makes their lives much, much easier. It gives them a great economic opportunity and also pride. This is marvellous. <laughs> this conversation is getting better and better. Gentlemen, we'll talk about the character of the Jewish state when the Arabs are fully integrated into the higher echelons of society 
in just a moment. But let's try and get back to the central discussion about electoral reform and about how the elections are affecting Israeli society, a tragedy that you called it earlier on. Now, of course, Netanyahu is Israel's longest serving prime minister, probably because he's also Israel's most adept ever politician. He doesn't even have to win an election, win a popular vote to be prime minister, as we saw with Sipi Livni, who beat him in the in the vote count. Uh, she couldn't form a coalition. He could. Uh, Nachman, uh, he is the guy around the Knesset that can fix things, bang heads together. And uh, it seems, though, even if he is heading to a majority or not, he's the guy in situ. It's his to lose. You expect Bibi to change the electoral system? No, I'm just saying that he's the most adept at forming coalitions. It's uh, he's the fixer. It's 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 fixer, it's his he, machine. But he's totally dependent on the ultra orthodox parties that uh, Danny uh, mentioned earlier, and they would like to see no change. Since 1948, they don't lend uh, to pass a constitution for the state of Israel. We have no constitution, democracy without constitution. Well, we do have a set of basic laws, which are, some of them are controversial. We rather have a constitution like any other democracy, but the orthodox will never let it pass. And others, we, other we political don't, we don't and electoral changes as well. We don't have one in Britain either. We have the Magna Carta, which is, no one really, okay, you But know, you, we, have, you have such a long tradition. You have such a long it's tradition. It's a huge tradition. I'm not really concerned about your, right, Israel is a young right. country young democracy, and every government has the ep big appetite to make the, the fundamental changes in the political system. And then you have to rely, and also the Supreme Court, you know, even, even when it comes to the Supreme Court, maybe uh, me and Danny do not agree. Supreme Court in Israel has a big appetite, you know, and they interfere sometimes in issues. They are not supposed to. Okay, but that's the way it developed, because there was no uh, constitution to rely on. So they rely on basic laws that at the time they were actually the, 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 the power beyond those basic laws. That's fine for the time being, but we need a constitution that every Israeli will be able to relate to. So we were running out far away from, from that. I don't see, unfortunately, any chance for electoral reform. I can give you endless ideas uh, that were raised during the years, what should be done in order to improve the system. One of them is a kind of regional, regional election, at least for, for half of the Knesset members, to give the, a certain representation in the Knesset, because most of the Knesset members are coming from the, from the center of the country. They're not aware, they're not sensitive enough to the needs of the wheels of the people all around the country. It wouldn't work because the ultra-Orthodox will lose all, those, all the political power because they are dominant in two or one or two major cities or three, and that's all. So if you hold regional elections in Israel, they will lose half of their political power. They will never have. They are very conservative. They are not open for any change. I mean, if they were not conservative, they were not ultra-Orthodox. I don't blame them. That's what they believe in. And the rest of the Israelis, they are dependent on them. Every coalition, this coalition, the next one, and the last one, all of them depend on the ultra-Orthodox, and they pay them as much as they charge to stay in power as much as they charge. There was one attempt a few years ago uh, when Yair Lapid joined uh, Netanyahu's coalition and the ultra-Orthodox were left out. That exercise, exercise will not repeat itself. Netanyahu totally relies on the ultra-Orthodox. They take them into account when he builds this coalition. Actually, he starts with the, if you ask me, he has already signed a coalition agreement with the ultra-Orthodox parties for the next message. This, the agreements are signed. They just have to rectify them at the last moment because that's the way it is. 
And I believe it's time for Israel to, to, to move forward. Uh, but I, I don't see a chance, which is very pessimistic, I know, but, but uh, we have to be realistic as well. Gentlemen, let's talk about the character of a Jewish state with a fully emancipated, fully educated and fully assimilated in a way that uh, we talk about in a secular fashion, Arab community. As you say, one in five Israelis is Arab. We have a population of what around nine million um, people. What about 9.2? Yes. What about the, the character of a Jewish state? When, for example, we'll have a cabinet minister, maybe even someone who's powerful enough, who served in the IDF from an Arab background that could even one day become a prime minister. There should be nothing to stop that elevation. But, but my question is, what about the character of something that is supposed to be a Jewish state, Ambassador Ayalon? Well, first of all, Israel is a Jewish state by not just by in a formal way or by definition. It is the very core identity of the Jews in Israel. And uh, being a Jewish state is not something which is... Uh, Negotiable. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not an exception to the rule. There, there are many countries who, de- who, who de- define themselves according to the, the main religion, which is fine. You know, most of the Arab countries and also some uh, Christian countries, whether it's Switzerland and, and others, I believe also in... Uh, England, John, your your country, the the, the uh, Church of England is the uh, pretty much the, the the you know the go to religion or or whatever. You see, I think this is something that we're having in Britain, which is bedeviling our society. And this is something that I'm talking about from a British perspective: is that the Church of England is losing its moorings here. Of course, it is the establishment, but there's nothing really to stop the Church of England being overtaken by completely secular values. Less than a million English people go to church on a Sunday in a population of 60 million people. Of course, everyone celebrates Christmas here because that's what the markets want us to (laughs) spend our money on in November and December. But Christianity is a declining power Uh, in Britain and the West. And so, you know, obviously we are not in the same situation with Judaism in Israel, but obviously it's the character of the Jewish state, which, um, you know, would be challenged by a successful uh, Arab society in Israel. So to that, my answer is very clear. You know, uh, uh, Judaism is not only a, a religion, it's a whole civilization. It is a nationality. It is ethnicity. It is a way of life. It's a cultural thing. And there is no oxymoron of a non-Jew living with all the rights in a Jewish state. Just like we, you know, I, 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 I said it to, to, to many in the international community, uh, including Palestinians. Listen, we as Jews who lived for 2,000 years in the diaspora, as, you know, uh, just spanning over 150 different countries, you know, Christians and, of course, uh, Muslims and, and even Hindus and all that. You know, we kept to our own identity as Jews, but we were very loyal to the crown or to the government. And there should not be any antagonism between the two. So this is why I don't see any problem for a non-Jew, Arab, Christian or Muslim like to live in Israel, to be proud of the country, to be part of the experience of uh, the, the, the Israeli society, 
but and not being a Jew, as long, of course, as they have full rights as everyone else. You know, Menachem Begin once said, and he was a great liberal, you know, and uh, Jabotinsky was a great liberal, uh, not at all like many of those now who supposedly are their followers in the Likud uh, party, but Menachem Begin said that for the non-Jews in the country, all the rights in the land, but no right to the land. And uh, I think this is uh, what is going in, uh, you know, any other country. You look at, the, at France. France is a French uh, country. England is an English country. Israel is a Jewish country. It's, it's uh, synonymous and uh, we sh it, it shouldn't be looked upon as something unique. And those who try to deny the character of Israel as a Jewish state are those who would deny Israel being a country altogether. And this is why, if, if we can uh, digress a little bit, this is why the Palestinians have always said that they will never ever recognize Israel as a Jewish state. Because they know once they recognize Israel as a Jewish state, they have no claims anymore. And uh, there's no reason not to make peace. That's a, a very simple and very uh, excellent explanation of why the Palestinian cause is so appealing to many non-Palestinians who have no connection. Uh, Nachman, when we were ice breaking, uh, we met a couple of days ago on Zoom to uh, meet each other for the first time, and it was uh, a most entertaining introduction. And I'm going to ask you the question again, because uh, I think Danny, I can speak for Danny as well, and Benjamin indeed, we were most entertained by your answer, Nachman about how after 20 days, 20 days, Joe Biden has still not called Benjamin Netanyahu, but you're telling, you're telling me that it's nothing to worry about. Well, since then there were there are 22 days now, he hasn't <laughs> called him yet. Each, uh, not only that, the other day, uh, former Israeli ambassador to the UN, Danny Danone, on Twitter, he urged the president, President Biden, why don't you finally call Netanyahu? Not only that, he provided him with his phone number, as if they don't have the phone number at the White House, they have to look at the, you know, the, the, the phone directory. But by the way, don't try Netanyahu on cell phone because he doesn't care cell phone. That's from wow. other reasons. Doesn't care cell phone, doesn't use a computer, a laptop and so on. I mean, he's very careful. So don't, I, but President Biden, if you want to call Netanyahu, don't look for his cell phone number. He has no cell phone number. But he's in his office now waiting for your call to come. I'm not that concerned about that. He only get to the president of China yesterday. Okay, so let's go on the list. Israel <laughs> doesn't come before China. China bothers, threatens, uh, and engages with, with America in so many fronts. This is the first. He talked to Putin the other day, and he has COVID-19 in this country, sure. in numbers, in figures, in, in proportions that have ne America has, has never experienced in their entire history. I mean, this is something, these are issues much more, much heavier than the question of phone call between Netanyahu and Biden that Bibi needs very much for his, probably his election campaign, that he can say, well, uh, my long time friendship with Biden is continuing. Let me tell you something. I believe Biden is a friend of Israel. I'm sure Danny knows him very well, and he can attest to it, and let him also describe his relations. Biden is around for 50 years, 50 years. We would have known anything. We know everything about him. He's a friend of Israel. 
but he's currently the president of the United States. And by the way, the reason he doesn't call Netanyahu because he says to himself, Netanyahu knows I'm a friend of Israel. Netanyahu knows I'm going to do everything to help Israel when it comes to the point Israel needs us. Okay, so let's just did. I expect Netanyahu to say, okay, I'm not concerned about this phone call. I trust the Biden. I trust Kamala Harris. I trust many others in this administration. I trust, well, it has for him to say, I trust even the Democratic Party. Well, that's something to ask some questions about, but he has to say that. And that's it. Friendship and strong relations, which Danny was one of the architects, will remain forever. We will disappear. The, the friendship between the two nations will remain forever. That's what I believe. Nachman, you didn't disappoint with that answer. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. And, it wasn't uh, an, an, as an alternative. It, it was, it was, it was excellent. Great use of hands, great oratory. Uh, I enjoyed every moment of that. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. So, uh, and, and by the way, anyone uh, can use this number to call Netanyahu and talk to him if he's in his office and waiting for phone calls to come. So pick up the phone, call Netanyahu. Pick up the phone. Say, hey, Yes, Here he not is. Biden and someone else, but I want to talk to you. But then, oh, oh, 972 Okay, what? I have the number here. I can give you the number too. <laughs> um, Ambassador, I mean, we have a situation here where uh, I suppose um, the translation of impeachment in, into Israeli politics is indictment, um, a political tool to attempt to stifle uh, the leader of the country. Of course, he is facing an indictment. Um, is that a is that a non-issue in this latest election, this fourth election in in two years? Evidently not, because we see also in the polls that you know the needle doesn't change. All those who uh, have opposed Netanyahu to begin with are vehemently for uh, his removal because of, on the grounds of his indictment. Those who were for Netanyahu continue to, uh, to support him. And you're right, Johnny, it's, uh, if we can make the comparison to the American system, then the indictment in Israel is like the impeachment by the House in the United States. And then it goes to the Senate and the Senate is, uh, uh, serves as the, as the jury or, or the judge. And this is the case here where after indictment, the, the final uh, conclusive decision is by the court. And uh, incidentally, according to the Israeli law, there is nothing to prevent anyone to serve as a prime minister uh, until, only until conviction. And uh, if indicted, he can continue to serve. By the way, this is in the stark difference than to a minister. If a minister is indicted, he has to resign, but not a prime minister. And that could be the president again. too, and the, and the president too. Exactly. And this may, yeah. may sound like odd. The minister has to resign. Why not the prime minister? You know, we say in, in, in Hebrew, Kal Vahomer, you know, for sure a prime minister. But there is a logic to this legislation. And the logic is very, very simple. When a, a minister is indicted, and we have had uh, some cases like that, and he goes to court, and he is exonerated, let's say he's found not guilty, he can resume his post. And no major shift in, in the political landscape in the, in, in the country. However, if a prime minister resigns, the whole government resigns, that means maybe a new election. And also from a uh, justice point of view or a fairness point of view, if a prime minister go, has his day in court 
and he is found non-guilty, he cannot resume his post as prime minister, uh, as any other minister. So this is the logic behind this law. And of course, uh, Netanyahu is uh, using it to the hilt. Danny, thank you for that. My final question as uh, we wrap this up goes back to the original proposition of this discussion. Can Israel's electoral system be salvaged? Gentlemen, I'm going to ask both of you, uh, we've seen four elections in less than two years. How many elections will we see in Israel over the next two years? Uh, Nachman. Well, I have, first I have to be elected to the upcoming Knesset, <laughs> and I urge all my uh, listeners, including Danny, who's currently in the country, to come and vote for Labour on March 23rd. I hope very much to be. I'm not sure that Labour is strong enough to get eight Knesset mandate, but who knows, miracles happened, as, as we know. A month ago, the, the Labour was under the threshold with, with no Knesset mandates or Knesset seats at all. And now we celebrate around six to seven, so maybe it will happen, especially when I, after I come to Israel, I'm sure everything will change. I'm just kidding. But, but honestly, as an Israeli citizen, I'm very much worried about the present situation. There's no government, there's no budget for over, state budget for over 22 uh, years. You know what it means. The country is running like, like a routine um, organization, routinely, yeah. without it's paying attention. Pilot. Like automa- on automatic Automatic, pilot. yeah, automatic yeah. pilot. Without paying attention to the urgent, uh, present urgent needs. Because the budget is two years old. But two years old, two years ago, no one knew about COVID-19, right? And many other issues. Iran is getting alarmingly getting close to nuclear bomb. It's not a joke. Danny will agree with me. They're getting closer. I'm not just saying word for word. We all know what's going on. Where's the, where's the government? Who's in charge? When you are always focused on the upcoming elections, for one day to another, all your attention, all your all the government, the cabinet, the Knesset members, everyone is dealing with us with upcoming elections. Who is in charge? Who is in charge of the life of millions of Israelis? So it's time to stop this circle of, uh, of elections one after the other and sit down and figure out what can we do for the better life of the Israeli citizens. We all owe them everything we can. I mean, what are the politics? Why the, con- the, the Israeli trust, the, the Israeli people trust in the Knesset has declined so much and the government? Because the, those people, they say, live in a, in a dream. The people say they don't, don't live in a dream. They got their own salary, which is fine their cars, their staff, they don't care for us. And even recently, they, they, they got a raise. Knesset members had a raise in January, 11%, where hundreds of thousands of Israelis are unemployed because of a certain system, okay? Time to take care of us, not with us taking care of you. I have no immediate solution for that. Let's see how the next election will end and then figure out what to do. And I'm not suggesting to join Labour, the, the Likud part, the Likud coalition. Oh, yeah, maybe Likud, but without Netanyahu. I mean, this is a condition for the Labour Party not to join any coalition as long as Netanyahu is there. Not that I dislike him. Actually, on a personal level, I do. But I think that the prime minister, and Danny just explained the, the, the situation legally, who faces three severe uh, allegations in, in, in Jerusalem, in, Jeru- in, in, in a court in Jerusalem, should spend all his time on this trial. And he cannot jump from the court to his office back and forth. That has never happened in Israel history, never. And when, unfortunately, another prime minister, Eud Olmert at the time, had found himself in a similar situation, he stepped down. He stepped down under pressure, but he did. 
And I expect Netanyahu to do exactly the same. You have a trial, deal with it. If you are acquitted, you can go back. Unfortunately, you lost the trial. We'll, we'll wait for the verdict. Danny, can you give me a short reply to that? Please? Sorry for the long reply. Not at all. Thank you. First of all, I want to say that I may take exceptions in the ballots uh, just to have Nachman get into the Knesset because we need more people like him. He is an exception to the rule. And by the way, the reason I support so much an electoral uh, reform, basically to go into a regional uh, elections by districts, let's say like in the United States, is first and foremost, not a matter of governability, first and foremost, the quality of the elected officials. Right now, they do not answer to the public. If they run in their own districts, they will have to answer to the public and the public will judge them on their own merit and we will have much, much better ensemble of uh, politicians. Now about elections, you know, I, I, I cannot predict and it could go Either way, it could go for more and more elections, or uh, maybe something will, will move. By the way, you know, when you talk about Netanyahu, to be 30, Netanyahu is, I would say, a tragic figure, almost in a biblical proportion, because he is probably the most talented individual and politician in Israel intelligent, uh, uh, gifted uh, abilities to do anything. On the one hand, and on the other hand, you know, sometimes he deals with, uh, you know, things like the, the little things and, and even muddy things. You know, there is a big gap between the two things. But Netanyahu has also shown that he is the only one that can change the course of the Israeli society without causing any ripple effects, just like he does with the Arabs. He you know, and this is what a great leader can do. You know, he can change course on a flip of a dime. So, for instance, if you ask me what uh, Netanyahu can, can, can do, and, you know, and, and, and he likes to surprise people sometimes, he could easily decide that, well, maybe this is his last term or he's going to serve as, let's say, four more years as prime minister, and he may ditch the ultra-Orthodox that uh, Nachman referred to and do a coalition with labor and the, and the center to do things that we have just discussed, you know, political reform and many, many other things that can really be good for the country and for the people. I wouldn't pass it by him to do that. Gentlemen, I expected uh, illumination and wisdom, but I also got a whole heap of hope there. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for this extensive discussion on Israel's electoral system. Ambassador Danny Ayalon, thank you very much, sir. And Dr. Nachman Shai, good luck on March the 23rd. And uh, let's see uh, Labour make a stunning return to uh, Israeli politics. Uh, whichever way uh, you vote, uh, good luck to everyone. I just want to say to uh, the Miriam Institute, thank you to Rosita Panini, to Benjamin Anthony and to Alan Langer. My name is Johnny Gould. Thank you very much 
for engaging in our discussion today. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or click on the PayPal icon on the donations page at jewishstate.co.uk or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee at coffee.com slash Johnny Gould. That's ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould.